Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. We, we started the service acknowledging that you were here, that you're meeting with us, that you want to speak to us. God, I pray that you would bring the encouragement to those of us who need encouragement. That as we look to your word, that it truly is your word that challenges us and builds us up and not Jerome's words. Some of us in this place may need a little push forward, and some of us in this place may need a little strength to continue forward. God, you know each one of our needs, and it's amazing how you can meet us where we're at, even though we're all speaking from the same text, but we have very different reference points. Lord, I pray that you would indeed do what it is that you must do, that we may be transformed into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back. I, uh, I say that every other week. It's good to be back. Let me make a promise to you. I'm not going anywhere for a while. We had a, a number of things that took place, both Radiant-related and my, my own uh, family-related. Heather and I ha- have not yet celebrated our 20th anniversary, but that's coming up uh, in early December. I know the date, I promise, but it's coming, up, it's coming up in early December, but it's hard to get away in December because every Sunday in December is pretty significant. So we took our anniversary trip uh, a little early. We've never actually done an anniversary trip. No, we went to Alaska once. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, Paris is better than Alaska. <laughs> All right. So we went to, many of you, if you know, if you're on Facebook, you probably know that we went to Paris. My wife's first time in Europe. I lived there as a kid because my father was military. And uh, I went to Paris once for a half a day. We were at a military installation in Brussels, Belgium. Took a bus trip down, drove around, and went up. And I was about 10 years old or 11 years old, and I really was not happy. that Because when you're a little kid, all you really care about is what? I'm going to go up the Eiffel Tower. So I've waited 20 years, and I used my excuse of a 20th anniversary to finally fulfill some sort of childhood trauma that, uh, that I have. Uh, and I brought my wife to Paris. This is how I want to remember Paris. You've seen this picture. This is on my Facebook. This is now, uh, this is something that I took, selfie shot with that. Uh, and I, it, it was a great thing. Can I tell you something about that Eiffel Tower? We did go up it. And when I got back to the States, I called my dad. And he was like, well, Jerome, did you get, up, did you get to go up the tower? Because <laughs> I think my parents knew that uh, there was woundedness there. But listen... <laughs> That right there is absolutely romantic. And this is how I want to remember it, because I am romantic once every 20 years. This is romance, right? Now, this is how I want to remember it. But here's the problem. This is not how you are allowing me to remember it. Yes, I'm kind of calling you out. Because here's what I've received when I've come home and seen many of you over the last week. You've taken my wife's picture, which is this picture. (laughs) You've taken my wife's picture that she posts... While we're going up the Eiffel Tower, who doesn't like heights and says, I'm doing this because I love my husband and he has issues from his childhood, essentially. <laughs> and you're like, boy, boy, does your wife love you? Oh, your wife really loves you. I, I walked into a room as the women's ministries board and I interrupted their, they're like, boy, you have a good wife. She, she just, you know, and I was like, wait a minute, I love my wife too. I just don't post about it on Facebook. You know, you just don't see it. Had I known it was going to go down this way, I would have taken a picture because as we were flying into Amsterdam, which we made our second connection, that's another story, but as we were flying into Europe, I, 
after a miserable night's sleep on an airplane, I looked at Heather and I said, you know what? You've never been to this continent before. Would you like the window seat? That's love. <laughs> that is love. Heights, window seat. I mean, come on. And here's the funny part. The window seat is heights. I don't know, but whatever. So, you know, so I gave up the window seat. I was looking for a little more applause, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, no, thank you for that. So this is the picture that uh, we see. But you didn't see that picture because I didn't take that picture. You saw the Eiffel Tower picture. And um, can, I, can I just say, I'll say one, more, one other thing. This is the second level at the Eiffel Tower. And it was cold and it was windy and it was miserable. And my wife, her nails were digging into my arm. And I said, babe, we could go down now. And she looked at me and she's like, and there was a line to go to the top, top. And she's like, there's no way that we're getting onto this thing and not going to the top because then you're going to complain about it for the next 20 years. So uh, we went to the top. But she didn't even bring her phone out because she was too scared to take a picture up there. So um, you believe what you see because it's posted there, but you maybe not believe as much what you didn't see because seeing is believing, is it not? That's the phrase that we use. Seeing is believing, or is it? That's what this text is about that we're going to look at as we move through the book of John. Seeing is believing. And for those of you who are doubters who did not see my wife sitting in the window seat, I have one word for you. Jesus has a word for you. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. All right? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. We'll pick up where Pastor D left off last week. I so appreciated her filling in while I was uh, out, out of the country. See, Jesus says that very word, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And while we know it's true and we've, we're familiar with that passage that comes later in the book of John, it's easier said than done, is it not? We all kind of struggle. If you're a believer today, the idea of believing seems like, well, you have that in the bag because I'm called a believer, so therefore I've shown some belief. But even as a believer who's put your trust and belief in Jesus you put your trust and belief in the good news, we still find it difficult to believe when the world seems like it's out of control. We feel like it's hard to believe when we can't figure out how's it, how's it all going to end? How am I going to navigate this? This last year in our own household, um, I had major heart surgery less than a year ago. My wife was diagnosed with uh, stage three melanoma skin cancer uh, a couple months ago. And I hope that you have looked at your pastor and his wife and thought, wow, what examples of faith. But I would warn you not to be too quick to put us on a pedestal because we had our moments. How's God going to come through? How's he going to provide? That's like one of the biggest questions of our entire walk. Is God going to provide? Is God going to provide when it comes to my area and my life when it comes to finances? Maybe that's the question you're asking. How will God provide in, in finances? How will God provide in relationships? How will God provide in career choices? How will God provide in my own wrestling with self and my own weaknesses? How will God provide? Now, if you're not a believer and you're undecided about Jesus, you're checking things out, we're so glad you're here because this book was written for you, really, more than it was for us. John crafts John, his, his gospel 
to show who Jesus is so people could make a decision whether they'd make, put their faith in Jesus. John was an a, a eyewitness, but he recognized there were so many who weren't, so he puts this together. John got to see and believe, but there's an element of believing without seeing that is a theme woven throughout the book of John. And while you're here, if you don't believe, if you're just checking out faith, if you're, someone dr- drug you to church, we are glad you're here because I think this is a great series to be in. See, I, I do believe that God does reveal himself to those who are seeking him, but I also believe that whether or not you make a decision to surrender and follow Christ, a lot of that probably will happen. It'll happen in a way that requires you to actually probably show some faith without seeing. And that's probably the biggest obstacle of faith that we have. I mean, we, we have put our trust in Jesus, I said a second ago. We still, have, we still have our issues in believing. So we all have questions on how we're going to believe. Let's look at this text, because I do believe that as we look at this text, God will speak to us regarding believing without seeing. If you have your Bibles, you, you should have already turned to John chapter 4. I think I mentioned that. No? Turn there. They did? Are you there? Give me a thumbs up if you're in John chapter 4. Oh, look at that. John chapter 4. Um, I say this almost every Sunday that I speak out of this passage. I give you a little background of the book, and maybe you already can memor- have this thing memorized. But John wrote to unbelievers. He gives us his purpose in John chapter 20. He, wants the, he said, Jesus did John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life and the power of his name. So, so John's purpose in writing this whole account of Jesus is so that we would have life and that we would believe. John is different from the other Gospels that you're maybe familiar with, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, his, they kind of share some material. John has his own stuff for the most part. Um, oh, I didn't want to open up a can of worms there, but trust me. Uh, John's very distinct. How about that? Now, let me give you, before we get to the text, let me give you a little orientation, just a reminder of where we are. Because we're at the very end of chapter 4, and I said when we started chapter 2 that John has these collections, these, these, these little um, miniature uh, sections within a larger section. The first half of the book of John is called the book of signs, where Jesus is, is having ministry amongst the, the world before he gets to the, the, the kind of the book that prepares him for the cross and for the ascension. And through the book of signs, it's, uh, which goes from chapter 2 to chapter 12, there's a small section two through four, that we're kind of finishing off now. And I don't want to do a huge review, but essentially what we've seen over the last two chapters is Jesus is turning the religious world upside down. He is bringing new wine, a new temple, a new birth, a new water, a new worship. There is a, there is a flipping of things, and it all started with this wedding in Cana of Galilee. You remember that sermon? John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, and we are told this is the first sign miracle. Well, what we're going to look at today is kind of the bookend. This is the second sign miracle. Now, last week, Pastor D led us to this point, and she, she spoke about the Samaritan woman who went into the village after Jesus met her at the well, and all these people came out and actually put their faith in Jesus. The Samaritans, the dreaded Samaritans, who the, the Jewish people looked down upon, were coming to faith, and Jesus was actually, at this point, that's the most success we've seen Jesus have with any group was the despised Samaritans. So it's important to keep that in mind as we look at this passage because you're going to see what John's doing here, what he's trying to communicate. 
because um, it leads us into our text. John chapter 4, starting in verse, verse 43. At the end of two days now, remember, we're, Jesus is sitting in Sychar in the Samaritan village, and he spent time with them. At the end of the, of, of the two days, Jesus went to Galilee. He himself said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had, they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover, and they had seen everything he did there. As he traveled through Galilee, it came to, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you ever... You will never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders. The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that this was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This, is, this was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming to Judea. So here we have this story of Jesus. He's in Sychar in Samaritan territory. Now he comes, and we read in the verse, first few verses, verse 43, he goes, he leaves there, and he, it tells us in verse 43, his movement. Where did he go? He went to Galilee. But verse 44 reveals more than just his movement. It, it gives a little bit of motivation. Why did he go to Galilee? Take a look at verse, especially if, you have the, if anyone has the Greek translation sitting in front of them, you, I'll give you $100. I was really wanting to do that. If you have a dynamic equivalent, an NASB or ESV, your translation probably starts off verse 44 with, with the word for. Now, what I just read doesn't have that, but in the Greek, there's the word for. Jesus went to Galilee for. There's a, there's, a, there's a purpose of why he went to Galilee. Well, what's that purpose? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet is without honor in his home, hometown. Well, that seems like a, a weird purpose. Jesus is going to go there because he knows that he's not going to be honored there. Now, Jesus doesn't actually say that in this text. He says it in the other Gospels, but John references it to remind us that that. that a prophet is without honor in their own hometown. And while Cana is not Jesus' hometown, it is his home turf. This is, this, he's a Galilean. This, it's not too far from where he was raised. So really, the picture is he's coming to his own people, his own tribe, and he's not going to be honored. Jesus is at home. That's the point that John's trying to make. And he wants us to compare and contrast the reception of Jesus by the Samaritans to the reception of Jesus of his own people. Jesus' track record with the Jews so far is pretty poor. I mean, he was in the southern part. He was in Jerusalem, and he's, he's been in other places so far in the book of John. But, but look back to chapter 2. Just You don't have to turn, but let me give you a, a reminder of what chapter 2 looked like. Jewish leaders had, has, have already challenged Jesus. His disciples didn't understand him. Some believed, we saw that some came to believe, and they said they put their belief in him, but Jesus did not trust them and did not believe them. So they believed because what John introduces us to in John chapter 2 for the wrong reasons, because of miracles and signs. Once again, we're about to see that happen. 
Because verse 45 has a weird, like, you wouldn't expect this to happen. Jesus goes to Galilee because he knows a prophet is without honor in his own home turf. So he shows up and they're like, eh, it's just Jesus. But what it actually says is not what you expect. It's they welcomed him. Well, wait a minute. I thought a prophet was without honor. Did they really welcome him or did they welcome what he can do? Keep reading in verse 45 and you see that they had seen what he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover. They had seen his marvelous wonders and his works and his miracles. They had seen that. And their appetite was set for that. They had seen what he has done and they believed. But just like in chapter 2, those who put their faith in Jesus, because of his signs, Jesus did not trust them. Verse 46 we read once again that he's in Cana of Galilee, and John points this out really to kind of tip us off, not just of geography, which really we don't, you could probably skip. You would think you could skip this stuff. It's just, ah, oh, it's just a location. But he's, he was reminding us that this, this section started in chapter 2 where he turned water into wine. This is that bookend. Uh, he brings up a number of things that are parallel to that first account. He calls the first miracle a sign. This one's a sign. But all the other miracles are not numbered. They're not signs. So something that should catch our attention, and it's meant to catch our attention. Listen to the parallels between the water into wine and the healing of the official son that, we just, that we're going to continue to look at. There is a statement of need. Jesus, they're out of wine. Come and heal my son. There's a request for help. Jesus expresses his disapproval. Woman, it's not my time. That's John chapter 2. In John chapter 4, it's, psh, will you ever believe unless you see miracles? Then Jesus actually does miraculously answer the need. He turns water into wine. We read that he, he heals this boy. And then belief, believing the whole purpose of this book, comes as a result of what he does. So this is, a, this is that, that, that bookend of this whole section that, that we're supposed to see mo- kind of as a unit. Then as we keep reading beyond just the location and the reminder that, that he's in Cana, once again, where he started in chapter 2, we, we, we're introduced in the very last half of verse 46 to the official. Now, many of you are familiar with Jesus, with Jesus, right? If you just glance at this, it sounds a whole lot like the, the Roman centurion, but there are some differences. The Roman centurion, well, he was a Roman and a centurion, and this guy was a government official, right? The Roman centurion had a servant who was ill. This is his son. The Roman centurion, by virtue of being Roman, is a Gentile. I don't believe this person was a Gentile, but I think sometimes we automatically do that because it looks so similar. As a matter of fact, Jesus was impressed by the the faith of the Roman centurion, but he wasn't too impressed by this request for a miracle by this gentleman he lumped him in with all the other Galileans. We're going to see that in a second in his response to this man's request. Jesus' response is very cool. Let's look at that. This man makes a request. He's traveled from Capernaum, just north of the Sea of Galilee. He's traveled to Capernaum. To, to, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about the miracles. He's heard about the, the, the miraculous. And he's more interested, once again, with those things than he is the person of Jesus. I don't care who's behind the miraculous. I need miraculous. I'm desperate for my son. And I can't blame them. I'm a father. I understand. He's looking at a desperation for Jesus to do something miraculous. Now, Jesus is already disturbed. We've been tipped off on that. He's already disturbed that people would put their faith in him because, or would look to him for the miraculous. Like the Galileans 
had heard of him and they were excited. They welcomed him, which they shouldn't have because they were supposed to be without honor, but they, they're excited about this miracle worker that they could claim to be theirs. So our guy, he's doing miracles. So Jesus replies with frustration. Look at verse 48 again. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Jesus laments that he wants his people to believe apart from seeing the miracles. As far as Jesus is concerned, this royal official is just like all the other Galileans. He represents all the Galileans. He represents what's wrong with this place, what's wrong with, it, with these people. Let me give you a Greek alert because I'm not, I have to do it. I, there's actually in my notes it says Greek alert. Since nobody has the Greek in front of them, including the preacher. The word, his rebuke that Jesus gives is not a rebuke just to this man because the original language has it in the plural. Will you not believe unless you see miracles? He's speaking to the whole crowd that's there. And by extension, the whole region that is enamored with miracles, looking for him, looking to use him more than love him or know him. The NIV actually helps us with that. Unless you people see signs and wonders. I'm sure there's a translation out there, probably the Holman Christian Standard that's Southern Baptist. It's probably, unless y'all see signs and wonders. <laughs> and if you're Baptist, I, I went to Baptist seminary, so we're cool. Uh, verse 49 through 50, just keep reading through. So we see this 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 plural rebuke to these people and put yourself in the, in the place of this official who's traveled to see Jesus because he's desperate because his son's about to die and Jesus has some weird like plural rebuke for everyone around you. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, sir, but I, I got a son who's going to die. You really just need to come with me. He, he doesn't bother trying to answer or, or respond or defend. He, he makes another attempt Jesus, would you come and heal my son? He's focused on the life of his child, the survival of his child. So he makes the second request. And then Jesus, this is, this is the best part. Remember, Jesus is irritated by people who want to put faith in him, just centered around miracles, who want to see those miracles. And he tells this man, who he's counted in the same group, Go home. Your son will live. Well, wait a minute. That's not how it works, Jesus. You're, you're supposed to like heal, touch, put your hands on him or spit in the dirt or something. I'm supposed to just turn around and walk away. I haven't got word that he's fine. I, it's way before cell phones. But this man turns around and walks away. What we read was that he believed Jesus' words. That's not what he came there for. He came to bring Jesus back to Capernaum. But yet, that's what he came there for. He, he came to see Jesus do a work in the life of his son. He got ultimately what he wanted, but he got it in a very different way. This man's a hero to me. Because <laughs> if I'm in his shoes, I don't know that I as readily say, okay, and turn my back on the miracle worker that I think I need to come with me and just believe what he said and walk all the way back to Capernaum. 
Maybe he's not like all the Galileans after all. I mean, the initial act of faith came out of desperation, but the story kind of builds. Just because I, I think I, I probably have a, a certain minimum of Greek references I'm supposed to have in a sermon, and I'm trying to catch up. The root word for belief that we see in this passage, we see belief, Jesus says it, and we see belief here, he believed Jesus, and later on we see the word belief again. Um, the root word is the same root word in Greek that we translate into faith and to trust. It's pistis. Pistis is translated belief, faith, and trust. And faith sometimes is a loaded term that feels like the force from Star Wars, if, you, if, you know, if you're familiar with that. And it seems so like religious duty. But trust seems like a very easy word for me. Trust, I think, actually helps me uh, kind of practically because trust helps me believe not just in Jesus, but on Jesus, that he's got this. I believe he is the Son of God, but do I really believe that he's going to provide? Do I really believe that he's going to come through? I could believe in him, but I don't have to trust him, I think. I trust him for my salvation, but I don't know that I trust him for my day-to-day See, trust is one of those things that I'm happy to prescribe to you, and if you come to me with your circumstance and situation, you're going to probably hear me say, trust the Lord. It's not because I'm an expert at it. It's just because I know that's the right answer, and it seems so shallow and easy, but when your world's spinning, it maybe doesn't seem like enough, but that's the answer. I'd like to prescribe it to you. I could, I could probably sometimes pull off trust when I have no other options, but as far as this, I'm concerned, this man still had options. He could have made a third request and a fourth request, and then he could have grabbed Jesus' leg and been like, no, you're coming to Capernaum with me. But he turns around and he walks away. He still had options. Jerome thinks he still had options, but he believed Jesus' word, and he started home. Grasping for that third and fourth and fifth option, isn't that kind of what we do? I'm not the only one, am I? When it, whether it is your how you view your finances or your relationships or your health or, or your own weaknesses and struggles. We, we, we try to figure out how we can manage it for God. See, for John's non-believing audience, with the purpose of putting belief in Jesus, the message is pretty clear. Believe in Jesus without seeing. And for the church today... I believe the message is very clear. Put your trust in Jesus. As we keep reading, we'll see that this man in verse 51 and forward, he's on his way home, and his servants come out, and he finds out from their interaction that his son is actually alive and well, and he says, well, what time did that happen? Well, at the seventh hour or one o'clock, approximately one o'clock. And he realizes at that moment, well, that's when Jesus said it. I, I don't know why it took him so long to get home. It's the next day. I won't go into that. It's really not the purpose of this message. But it's an interesting thought that if you do the mileage or the kilometers, because it's metric there, right? If you do the kilometers, I think he might have been able to get back sooner, but for some reason, he didn't. Maybe, maybe that was driven out of trust that God had this, that he provided. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into stuff, but let me just say, it's the next day. And if Jesus said, your son's going to be healed, and I could, finally, and I could actually pull myself away from him and really believe that, I'm going to race home to see for myself. Now, anyway, 
the timing of this, when Jesus said it and when it happened, strengthens this man's face, this faith. This healing is not random. And as we see, it results in him believing again. He's already believed Jesus, but now it says that he and his household believed not for a miraculous sign, but in a person. The first belief was, I believe that what you say is true. I believe that you're answering my request, which I think is hard enough to do. But now he's putting his belief in the person of Jesus and his family. This theme is repeated, and I kind of referenced it at the very beginning. John chapter 20, the post-resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples, and Thomas is doubting. And Jesus says, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And John is writing quoting Jesus and saying, Jesus is speaking right to you to put your faith in him. I found this quote that I thought would be worth sharing, and the only thing I'll put on the board today is from St. Augustine of Hippo. I know you want to say St. Augustine, like Florida, but you sound more academic if you say Augustine. Uh, At least that's what I had to fake for my church history teacher in seminary. Faith is to believe what you do not yet see. The reward for this faith is to see what you believe. Faith is to believe what you do not yet see. The reward for this faith is to see what you believe. Listen, from the very onset of this sermon, I did something that I don't like doing. I've pretty much showed you my hand and what this message is about. It's about believing without seeing. I like to hold that tight and kind of spring it on you. But I, I, this is not a new truth. This is not like, oh, Jerome, that was very wise and deep Bible stuff. This is basic Bible stuff. But you know what the problem is? As Christians, sometimes we go for, give me something deeper. Give me something that I don't know. And sometimes we just need help doing the most basic things. Faith without seeing is easier said than done. Faith without seeing is easier, easier prescribed than, than lived out. John's purpose in writing this book is belief, that belief would happen without seeing. And he's making a point here by, by, by spending so much time talking about the Samaritans. To his audience of Jewish people, the Samaritans are, are winning. <laughs> they have put their faith in Jesus. Think about the, the interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritans in the village of Sychar. You've had these declarations of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is sent by the Father. He is the Savior of the world. These are the despised Samaritans And the people of the covenant are not coming to grips with who Jesus is. In fact, they are opposing him. And they can't see beyond their desire for miracles to the person of Jesus. This is what we read about in the very first week of the series in the prologue. John chapter 111. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. See, Jesus was popular in Samaria but not amongst his own people. And as a result, it leads him to the cross. His very purpose of being here. So when you go back to that verse 44, Jesus goes to Samaria, for he knows he's without honor in his own hometown. Why is he going to his people? Because he's got a greater purpose. It's to go to the cross. To take on the sins of the world. To live a life that we could not live and die a death that we deserve, that we may inherit something that we'll never earn. Now what we're going to see as we move forward in the series, it'll be after Christmas, 
uh, when we really dive into it. In the next few chapters, we're going to see this um, opposition grow from just we have reservations, we have hesitations, but now we are opposed to Jesus. This thing begins to escalate between Jesus and his people. Faith, isn't, is, is, faith is to believe what you do not see. And the reward for this faith is to see what you believe. If you're a believer today, I've referenced it a couple times. How do we answer the question whether or not God will provide? <clears throat> if you're looking at your checkbook at the end of the month and wondering, I, I don't know that it's in there. How do we move forward with those questions of whether or not God will provide? How do we live out faith, believe, trust? If you have a strained relationship and you're heading into the holidays and you're thinking, I don't even know that I want to drive to that house on Thursday. Where does your trust in the Lord come into play in a very practical, you're four days away from driving to that house for that meal? If you're facing concerns or issues at the workplace, is God going to provide maybe your own weakness and you look at yourself and you, you feel like you have to kind of keep a cover on who you really are. Is God able to meet you and provide you there? Absolutely. Let me give you three questions and these are three questions you've heard me say before but I want to remind you of them. Three questions that help me when I face something that overwhelms me. Does God know your situation? I think most of us would say, yeah, God knows my situation. He's God, right? Is your situation too big for God? Most of us would always be like, no, he's not too big for God. But the last question is the hardest question. Does God have good plans for you? I find that to be one of those things that people trip up on. Because I think we have no doubt that God has good plans for others. But sometimes it's hard to, to really accept that God has good plans for us. Does God know your situation? Is your situation too big for him? Does he have good plans for you?